Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Martini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show is coming up right next. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Hey, everybody, welcome. Welcome to the show. And for those of you out there, this show right here and the work that Nancy Landrum does to help families, to help children, to help people, let's just say people, around the topic we're about to talk about, I will tell you that this particular topic today is about a widespread event that is not just happening in the United States, but worldwide. Right now, as many as we can count, then you have to add another 40% of those that you can't count. Right now, the rise in addiction, whether it be drug or alcohol, but definitely alcohol, drugs, the rise since COVID is unprecedented in our history. Some say it even topples what happened after prohibition. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means heartbreak. It means heartbreak. At so many levels, it means heartbreak. How to survive the heartbreak of your young drug addicted child. There's nothing more powerful than to know that there is hope and solution. Because this is an arena that most parents and grandparents fear that they will ever have to hear those words. And an area where most people don't know what to do. That's why this show is different. Nancy is someone that works with people all over the world. She is an expert when it comes to relationships of all kinds. She looks at what it means to take a relationship and move it into a recovering happiness in your life status. Relationship Rehab Show with Nancy. This is the show where we look under every rock because when we are looking at relationships, you can't hide things. You can't hide the, the joy. You also can't hide the unhappiness, the sadness. And we are in relationship with each other. But what about this topic today? This one. What happens when you hear the words, your child is addicted to dot, 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 dot. Nancy, it's great to have you. Thank you. I'm so glad to be with you today and particularly about this topic. 
<clears throat> this is a tough one for, uh, and it's, I think it's one of the topics and one of the areas where people need the most help. Well, I certainly wish I'd gotten more help mm -hmm. at the time that this was developing in our family. Mm -hmm. uh, no, no one ever plans on giving birth to a child that's going to be a drug addict or a felon or have mental illness. You know, that's, that's not in our, that's not in our dreams when we know that a child is coming into the world. Uh, certainly wasn't part of our plan and we didn't have, we had no reason to suspect that that would be the future of our firstborn child. Uh, Stephen was healthy. He was very bright. He was physically advanced. Uh, by the time he was a year old, he climbed on top of everything in my house except the refrigerator. Uh, he climbed over the neighbor's fence and was playing with the water in their pool when I ran around and found him and brought him home. Uh, he was he was just quite an amazing child and one that he was a daddy's boy. Uh, he loved his daddy. The highlight of his day was when his father came home. He would run yelling, daddy, daddy, daddy's home, and spent all those waking hours from the time his dad got home until bedtime he spent with his dad. And then when Steve was two years old, his father unexpectedly died. Uh, not what we planned for our marriage or for our family. And Stephen had a, he, it was a huge trauma for a two-year-old. Uh, he went from a vocabulary of about 200 words down to 10 or 12 words. He was almost potty trained. He went back to diapers for a year. He clung to me, would barely let go of me, uh, panicked whenever I had to leave him somewhere. Uh, and I look back now, by the time he was in um, preschool, he would only color pictures in purple and black. And I knew when I looked at his scribbles that he was depressed. There was, you know, there was something very disturbed about him that was because of his dad's death. But as a, you know, 25 year old mother, I, I didn't know what to do about it. And the thought of taking a three or a four or five year old to a child psychologist was just so far outside the realm of my thinking or my culture. So after uh, kind of I'll shift to the middle years that were a lot of fun. Uh, he was very athletic, very bright, but he had trouble making friends. He had trouble concentrating on completing tasks. And uh, I just thought that, you know, that someday he'd outgrow the difficulties that he seemed to have. And during those middle years, it was kind of, a, I don't know, it was relatively safe and relatively easy and very fun for me as a mom. But as soon as he hit puberty, he hit junior high school, he began sassing teachers, which just mortified me. I couldn't even imagine a child of mine 
sassing teachers or being very flippant and rebellious about not turning in assignments. Uh, he began uh, being a problem at home and he was perceived by teachers and by the rest of my family and myself as just a discipline problem. And then um, when he was 15, he, uh, his little league coach came to me and said that he thought that Stephen was coming to practice high on something. And I made excuses. I said, you know, he's always had allergies. The symptoms are very much like his allergies. I'm sure it's just allergies. And this poor coach was trying to give me a heads up and I couldn't hear it. Yeah. Uh, a year later, I was awakened at two o'clock in the morning by a policeman when I thought Steve was in bed asleep. And he'd been out joyriding in his stepsister's car and drove so competently that the policeman said he nearly got away from him. But they did catch him and he was in jail and I did the typical parent thing. I bailed him out. Uh, I was, it was like my image of myself as a mother was being destroyed by this kid, his kid's behavior. And I was concerned about him, but I was also feeling so lost and so incapable of dealing with behavior that was so far outside the realm of my experience. And I didn't know where to look for help. It didn't help that my family and some of my friends were blaming me Yeah, that I wasn't a good enough mom. My dad yeah. didn't think I disciplined Stephen enough. <sighs> my mother thought he needed more spiritual direction. My sister was appalled at his behavior. No one had any sympathy for me. It was like I was the person in the family that was raising the out of control kid. Yeah. So there was a lot of blame coming toward me, which was so painful to deal with. There wasn't any comfort. You know, there was no understanding. There was no practical solutions. Uh, I was just as lost as Stephen was. Yeah. yeah. Later, I realized that he was addicted to drugs. I was addicted to trying to fix him. So all my behaviors were attempts to fix him so that he would get back on track and the pressure would be off of me. Uh, and I, it's hard to admit how um, concerned I was with my own image, with uh, how people perceived me. <laughs> you know, the, the lessons about codependency finally began to take root in yeah. And the, maybe the first lesson, well, when he was just before his 18th birthday, I committed him to a um, drug rehab program that was like a lockdown facility. He couldn't get out. And he submitted and went through the program for three months and kind of played the game of doing what he was told to do. Oh, yeah. But when it came time, well, and let me tell you this, the psychologist that evaluated him 
in a family meeting with myself, my late husband and Stephen, uh, the psychologist walked in and threw Stephen's chart down on the table and he said, I don't know what you're doing here. You belong at Caltech. Your intelligence is off the charts. You ought to be going to Caltech. What are you doing here? And, um, and that was my question too. You know, how did we end up in this place that was just a nightmare, not only for me, but it was also a nightmare for Steve. He was out of control and did not know how or why uh, how to control himself, how to put himself back on track. And he knew he was hurting the whole family. He was ashamed. He was embarrassed, but he did not, he was not able to control the addiction. And that's the nightmare of addiction is it takes over your life. Uh, I have a, a recovering alcoholic is one of my clients. And he said in in the AA circles, they talk about how chaos just uh, surrounds addicts like a cloud. They bring chaos with them wherever they are and in every relationship that they have. Yeah. And, you know, look, we're talking about, let's just talk about this for a minute. But first, thank you for sharing that story. I mean, I could hear as you're talking through this, you know, how gut-wrenching it is and how parents, right? Um, I can't speak for too many dads, but I can't speak for the moms that I know. Um, it just hits the heart so bad. But, you know, one of the things you brought up, which we rarely talk about, is the blame game that happens. And by the way, that doesn't really help the children. Oh, when, when you start to blame parents or you start to blame teachers, that is not helping the, the the child but what you're talking about i mean i think about my family and that age that you zoomed in on that puberty age right there that thing that something happens um it's not a matter of did i do a good job but it's so hard not to avoid it's so hard to avoid taking on that responsibility um, there's a reason that people in AA circles talk about the chaos. And yeah. the reason is very simple. When you are an addict or an alcoholic, and I say addict very loosely because it could be drugs, it could be food. I mean, it could be any number of things. Right. You have one thing in mind. Your number one priority every day is just that one thing. That and must get satisfied. Get what you're what you want You'll that's it to get what you want that's it and if you're a teenager and you don't have a job and you're not making money you're going to go to any length you can you're going to steal from your parents you're going to shoplift you're going to do whatever you need to do and you know this is today in you talking about this is to really peel the layers back to the emotional side of addiction, right? And not only the emotional side of addiction, but the emotional side of being the parent of an addict, oh. being the codependent. Yeah. Because there's so much blame on myself. There was blaming myself as well as other people blaming me. 
but I was also blaming Stephen. I, I was harassing him. I was yelling at him. I was shaming him, berating him, you know, trying to get through the fog of his addiction to change his behavior. And that didn't work either. It doesn't work to blame the addict. Hmm. They're in the grips of something beyond their control. And to try to force them to get help when they're not ready to get help for themselves is a useless exercise. But isn't this the work, too, that we started to talk about today? For those of you just tuning in, Nancy Landrum is joining me here. We're taking your calls as well. 1-800-930-2819. We're taking your um, calls right now. Um, Nancy, talk about now the lesson you learned from this and the body of work you now do to help other parents. My own recovery started slowly, and I kind of, when I was thinking about this program, I was sort of laughing because I think my own recovery started when I was just totally exhausted and could not deal with him or with his addiction anymore. So when it was time for him to leave the recovery program at age 18, I would not let him come home. He had to stay clean and sober for three months on his own outside of the recovery program before he could come home. And Stephen was shocked. He was heartbroken. He thought I would just keep giving in, keep loving him, quote unquote, loving him, you know, keep doing what I could to save him. Uh, so when I said, you can't come home, uh, he was heartbroken. I said he could come in during daylight hours and eat what he needed to eat, but he couldn't come into our home just to crash. Uh, that was a huge step of self-care on my part, which I think was a turning point for me when it came to Steve. I could not deal with the chaos he brought into our home, the stealing from us, the damage to property, the um, going to court with him because he'd been arrested for trying to sell stolen property. I just couldn't, I was at the end of my rope and exhausted. But as the years went by, my own recovery became more, what's the word I want to use, more sane, I guess, not just in reaction to him, but also a deeper understanding of the role I had been playing that wasn't really helping Steve at all. I remember when he was about 23 or so, we were riding in the car together. And I said to him, I, I'm through trying to fix you. Uh, your life is your life. You get to live it the way you want to. If you decide you want recovery or you want help finding a good recovery program and you ask me for help, I'll do everything I can to help you. But I'm through trying to make you get help. And I want you to know that no matter what you decide, I'm going to be okay. And that was a huge statement for me to make. Like, no matter what you do with your life, I'm going to be as healthy as I can. I'm going to take care of myself as well as I can. And I still love you. I'll always love you. There's nothing you can do that will make me stop loving you. 
But part of this process was that I had to redefine what love meant. And love had meant in the past being nice, being accommodating, always forgiving him no matter what, uh, letting him come back into the house and stay with us even when he had been stealing from us and stealing from his stepsister and damaging her car. And it was like there was no limit to what I would tolerate, thinking that that was what was love. Yeah. That wasn't love. Yeah. That's called enabling. I was making it easy for him to continue yeah. on this path that was so damaging, not mm -hmm. only to himself, but to me mm -hmm. and to the rest of the family. It is really uh, a journey for both parents and children. You know, the hardest thing that I think I had to do, and it was uh, in New Jersey, and, um, you know, Linda and I had my uh, sister and her husband visit us from Florida. And, uh, and I knew that I knew, I knew that my sister's joy, I knew that her journey was down the path of drugs. Of course I did. I can't, that's my family, you know, every one of us, every one of us. But where was I going to draw the line? Where was, where was it? So here I am, we're in this home, in a great neighborhood, close to Linda's parents, and my sister and her husband shows up and there's a, they got the cocaine. So he's a cocaine dealer. They're in the with the cocaine. I don't remember how we figured out that they had cocaine. I don't know if we went to the bathroom and saw it. And I was faced with this decision. What do I do? I'm not going to change my brother-in-law. Right. And as a matter of fact, we're kind of afraid of him. Right. Mm -hmm. Kind of like a crazy guy. And I had to ask my sister to leave. Yes. Because asking her to stop using in my home, she couldn't do that. Yeah. And it was, please, if you, right? And they ended up packing up and leaving. And yes. that's just one act. None of this is really easy, is it, Nancy? All of it is excruciatingly hard, excruciatingly heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't, I wouldn't send this journey on. I wouldn't give this journey to anyone. Yeah. Yeah. And yet in the long run, I learned so many powerful lessons as a yeah. result of being Stephen's mom. Yeah. That I, I wouldn't trade the lessons I learned for anything. Mm -hmm. And um, one of them was Stephen eventually died. Uh, his heart had enlarged so much due to cocaine and speed that uh, his heart just finally yeah. gave out. He died just before his 30th birthday. And if, you know, up until then, I was just, I guess I was just focused on dealing with the situation as it was and preparing myself for his death. The doctors told us two years before he died that he could die any day. But after he died, it was like this gigantic boulder of self-judgment landed on my shoulders. Like, how is, could I allow this to happen to my child? Why didn't I find 
help for him sooner. I must have been a terrible mother. Yeah. The judgments just were, were, it was like a granite boulder the size of a car landed on me. Fortunately, I was in my master's program at the time, and I was supposed to choose a project for my final year. And I asked my advisor if I could choose the project of forgiving myself for judging myself as a bad mother. So every morning I went for a long walk and all the way on the walk, I would put my hand over my heart and say, I forgive myself for judging myself as a bad mother. Every day of my life as a mother, I did the very best I knew how to do. And over, I, it seemed like I was hacking away at this granite boulder with a pick. But I kept it up for several months. And during those months, I began... It was like my mind opened up to the other aspects that contributed to Stephen's addiction. It wasn't all on me. I mean, Steve made choices that were his to make. Yeah. You know, but what you're talking about, and I want to talk about this when we come back from break, but that's why the work you do is so powerful. You know, I had a friend say something to me uh, a number of years ago uh, because I thought I, I thought I would, I had thought I had arrived. I thought, oh, I could coach people. And my friend said to me, Pat, you can't take a person to a place you hadn't gone before. And I didn't know what they were talking about because I had been through a lot. I've been through yeah. everything you're talking about, except for one thing. And that was I had always been physically fit. And the, and once my friend said that six months later, I came down with a mystery disease because obviously I was supposed to help people. Obviously you are meant to help people through this and you can't help people at this level. If you have not gone through it, the guilt, the shame, the anger, the resentment, the feeling of lack of control, like, you know, this helplessness feeling. The self-judgment. And the self and the regret. Um, Nancy, how do people find out more about you? And also, I know you've written a book about this. Tell us about how they can get copies of your books and how they can work with you before we go to break. The book is Pungent Boundaries. Uh, it's the story of my recovery from codependency, and it includes stories other than Steve, although the stories about Steve are also in the background. Um, part of the book, the bound, learning to set appropriate boundaries was a, such a critical part of recovery from codependency. I had to decide that it was I was valuable enough to set boundaries that took care of me, that protected me from his chaos, and. Um, boundary setting is a problem that many people have that don't know how to do that but that was a crucial part of dealing with Stephen and recovering from the codependency that I was contributing to his addiction so you order it on Amazon it's a beautiful little book it has a brand new cover Um, I also just recently finished this book called Your Inner Child a path to healing and freedom that goes into healing the wounds, yep. those nightmare years. Yep. 
And we're going to talk about these more when we come back because, and I just want to say this to you all, taking this journey alone, when you are in the throes of a child and you're, this is unfamiliar territory to so many people, but when you're in the middle of this, to try to take this on alone is beyond daunting. You know, there are things that you will be able to get help with in working with Nancy. When we come back, we're going to talk about redefining love and this, this, this dynamic energy between what we think is love and codependency. Now, that is a word that gets used very often. When we come back, we're going to show you exactly what it turns to look like. Codependency would have kept my sister there, put my, my, my house in jeopardy, especially legal jeopardy. But how do you take that? And then what if, what if you lose a member like Nancy, like I did with my sister? And you start to think, I should have done more. I could have gone to see her. Maybe I could have, if I'd have only done that. And I remember somebody saying to me, Pat, you just ain't that powerful. Let's take a short break, everybody. We'll be right back. Sometimes being human has its challenges. Our physical health falters, our spirits sag, our dreams don't immediately come to fruition. Welcome to the power of Maximum Medicine Radio. Join me, Doc Martin, in conversations that will blow your mind about healing. In our hit show, Doc Martin addresses the scientific with bridging to the mystical approaches to give you a new narrative about Maximum Medicine. In this live call-in show, we will journey into the extraordinary genius of the human body and talk about other beliefs that impact being your multidimensional self. We seek the seen and the unseen and explore the earthbound and the otherworldly, all with the purpose of calling forth the maximum you. To learn more about Doc Martin and Maximum Medicine, visit www.SharonMartinMD.com. Stuck in a roundabout of dysfunction? Stop circling around difficult issues and find out what's been holding you back. Learn how to speak your truth to power with host Dr. Kathy O'Bear. Create real change with smart tools and smart strategies. No frills, no fluff, just life-changing conversations to help get you where you want to be. Extend your reach and become an agent for real change with Kathy O'Bear. For more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. That's drkathyobear.com. Tune in to the show Heart Change Consciousness with me, Dr. Trish DeRocher, as stories of inspired activism come to life. Listening to conversations with your favorite authors, change makers, and many more who practice inspired spiritual activism and transform vulnerabilities into sources of strength. Let's be inspired together through my show, Heart Change Consciousness on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Transition, simultaneously the most difficult and vital part of the human experience. Without change, how would we grow? Tune in to Grounding Into Your Radiance with Stacy Barber every second and fourth Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Step into your truth and allow the light into your life. 
For more information about Stacy and her services, visit stacybarber.com. That's Stacy, S-T-A-C-I-E, barber.com. It's time to get your life back on Burn Bright Today with Jennifer Marcinelli. Tune in each month on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Learn to move from the darkness of burning out to the light of burning bright. Jennifer is redefining stress and the energetic causes of burnout, shining a light on process to get your life back. For more information about Jennifer and her work, visit BurnBrightToday.com. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. Um, Nancy Landrum is joining me here today. I want to make sure you all go to nancylandrum.com. Um, I want to also say the book that she's written on boundaries is one of the best. As a matter of fact, I work with uh, women in recovery, and it is my go-to book that is outside of the realm of AA. So please don't don't email me about that because I do use outside material when I work with women on a whole range of things. But it's one of the best books written for anybody that is struggling with boundaries, boundaries and relationships. Uh, and it is one of the toughest things if you are also struggling with codependence. Um, and this is from a woman that knows this real life terms and is an expert in the field of relationships. Today, we're taking on addiction, but if you've listened to previous shows, you've heard us talk about relationships. And my takeaway from all of us here is we absolutely piggybacked off of her book on communication because it's one of the more powerful, easy to adapt ways to show up in relationships and be able to communicate and understand each other. But this topic today, this topic today, whether you're going to get the boundaries book, what is the, uh, let's tell everybody where the books are. If you don't mind holding them up again, Nancy, they can get them on Amazon, right? Amazon. Yeah. Amazon will send them to you in a few days. Yeah. Um, the boundary book, by the way, if you're ever working with people in groups, Nancy's boundary book is so powerful to do. There's so many questions that come from boundaries. And by the way, if you have one for Nancy, 1-800-930-2819. So before the break, I, I said I, a quote here from you, Nancy, real love is tough. Real love is tough. Boy. Well, in this situation, it has to be tough, which isn't what as a mother I ever wanted to do. I didn't want to be tough. But no matter how much we care or love, we cannot control or dictate the choices our adult children make. That was a, a kind of a bedrock reality was realizing that I had no control over Stephen or whatever he chose. Uh, codependency, my definition is assuming responsibility for the consequences of another's life choices. So the painful consequences that were the result of Stephen's decisions, I was taking on. I was trying to fix. I was bailing him out. You know, I was trying to find recovery programs. I was trying to fix Stephen in order to relieve myself of the pain of having a drug-addicted child. And of course, I loved him and was concerned about him. But I was also feeling so much pain myself. I just wanted to get out of pain 
And the way I thought I had to do that was to fix Stephen. It didn't work. And it doesn't work with any active addict. The only way out of the pain caused by another's choices is to make clear boundaries that appropriately protect you from the fallout of another's choices. That's why Steve could not live at home. It means for me, it meant that I had to redefine the meaning of love. Love is not always doing what makes the other person happy. It, love is not doing what makes someone else love you. Uh, I could make decisions that made Stephen happy, but they weren't good decisions for me, and ultimately they weren't good decisions for him. Real love is doing what is in the other person's best interests, as well as doing what gives me peace of mind, taking care of myself, doing whatever I had to do in order to separate myself from the destructive patterns that were part of Steve's addiction. And, you know, the interesting thing, I think there's a spiritual law here that is really important to understand. When I make a decision that is authentically healthy for me, not self-centered or, um, you know, it, it's not self-indulgent, but a, a decision that is healthy for me, it will automatically be a good decision for the other people involved, whether they like it or not. So my decision to not let him live at home until just before he died, he did come home to live uh, a, a bit before he died. Um, but my decision to not let him live at home, stop paying his bills, stop picking up the messes he made uh, to protect my own peace of mind was also good for Stephen because it helped him face the consequences of his own behavior. Yeah. You know, I, what we're talking about, it, you know, every time I share my story a little bit with people, they always point to, oh, that's so bad. Your mom did that. Well, my mom kicked all of us out. I mean, you know, at different points in time, there was something that showed up where either my sister drank all the moonshine and then filled it up with water like nobody would notice, right? That yeah. never went over really well. But yeah. there were a point in time where if, if all of us would have continued to stay home, I am pretty sure we would have not made it past 21. Yeah. I am, I'm very sure of that. We would have not made it past 21 because yes. we were in the womb and could behave in any way we want, we would always be able to not be responsible for ourselves, right? This codependency. Yeah. In today's world, Nancy, there are more resources yeah. for people that are struggling with addiction, that are struggling with alcoholism, that are struggling with overeating, and you name it, it doesn't matter. But there are very few resources that help parents in knowing what to do. And that's what you're talking about today. Actually, we found a meeting that was, I think it was called Tough Love. Yeah, it sounds about right. And I only attended one of those meetings, but it was so helpful to me because when I uh, committed Stephen to a rehab 
lockdown facility when he was 18. Um, we were in the car. Well, I had to lie to him to get him to hang. He knew something was up. He was getting ready to walk out because he just felt the vibe. Something was up. And I lied to him to get it to stay there long enough for the police to come to escort him to this lockdown facility. And when we got in the car, he turned to me and he said, you lied to me. How could you lie to me? And I said, Stephen, it was my turn. It was my turn. You have lied and lied and stolen and lied. And I did what I had to do to get you into this rehab facility, which he actually never forgave me for. He thought it was so horrible. But that was one of the steps that was just so incredibly painful. Yeah. I, I, I don't have much time left here because of his age. He was 17, actually, when I sent him to that facility. But by the time he was 18, I would have absolutely no control to yeah. into a rehab facility. No. And, you know, these are the things we look back on and we get really clear about. You know, uh, my mom did the same with my sister Joyce and my sister Doris, um, and she too knew that once they got past a certain age, that would be it, yeah. right? Um, and, you know, there are so many resources that are available now that weren't available then because you know why, Nancy, we're, ta you're, we're talking about it. You know, you're sharing a very heartbreaking and gut-wrenching story about your journey N not because it's easy to talk about but because what you've learned could save another's life uh could save a save a family relationship you know could save parents and children alike you know the hardest thing for a parent is for themselves to move beyond the guilt and the shame and and that the impact of that we we cannot emphasize the impact of that enough when we make decisions parenting decisions that come from guilt or shame or fear you can pretty much guarantee it's not a good decision for the child or for you so that process of my final year of my master's program of forgiving myself was right after steve died and I kept up that mantra, I forgive myself for judging myself a bad mother. The truth is every day of my life, I did the best I knew how to do. I kept that up for months. And finally, there was an amazing breakthrough, a huge uh, experience where I literally relived the day that Stephen's father died when Steve was two. Uh, I was in the I saw myself in the hospital sitting on this orange Naugahyde sofa and this poor doctor trying to tell me my husband had died. And he used a word I didn't understand. <clears throat> and I said to him, what does expired mean? I was 23 years old. I didn't know what expired meant. Wow. And the poor doctor just lost it. He had to tell me he was dead on arrival. There was nothing they could do. And I saw that 23-year-old girl that was barely out of her teens. She was still a child. And I and that boulder of self-judgment just disintegrated. I thought, I was a child. I did everything I could. I stayed alive. I was there for my kids every day of their lives. They never knew abuse. They were loved every day yeah. of 
lives. I thought I did everything I knew how to do. And, you know, part of this journey that Stephen took through addiction was my journey to go through with him to release myself and him from my addiction mm -hmm. to codependency. Yeah. You know, there are, there are hundreds, thousands now of meetings of Codependence Anonymous that are free meetings that anyone can go to. You can get the support you need get the rational, uh, sane thinking that you need to help you make good good decisions in regard to your children's addiction. Yeah, and to get some ongoing support. See, one of the things that, that I, I, I think that we should really point out is that when you are in this attachment dependency, this codependency, when you are in it, you cannot always see clearly no. You know, people say, well, why don't you just dot, dot, dot? Or why don't you just stop dot, dot, dot? Well, that's because you're on the outside and you're not in this dance that goes on. And that's why working with someone else, whether it's in a codependency program or, or working with you, Nancy, it gets to shine a light on an area within ourselves that is really dark to us that we can't see. Um, and a lot of times we don't see another option. Right. And that's really the seductive nature of codependence. You know, everybody else around us sees it and we don't see it. We're like the last to see it, especially in relationships. Because it is so incredibly hard to change our definition of love for this child. Yeah. I mean, for, I don't know, umpteen years, the definition yeah. of this child is to be affectionate, to tell him I love him, to help him solve his problems. And then all of a sudden, I have to do a, a total mind shift, a, a total, you know, a U-turn. Yeah. To redefine what love means in relationship to this child. Uh, taking care of myself, doing what I had to do in order to separate myself from the destructive patterns of Stephen uh, is always going to be in the best interest of the child as well, whether they like the decisions or not. Stephen didn't like the boundaries I set up, and it would be unrealistic to expect him to. He was used to this nice, accommodating mother that would just tolerate any misbehavior from him. Uh, so to expect him to approve of or like or appreciate the boundaries I set for him was would be terribly unrealistic. Yeah. And, you know, I know that we've talked about a lot here, but it, it really is important to also mention to, to people. There are a lot of times there are other children in the family. Yes. You know, there 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 is the child or the one or two children that you are dealing with every day 24 7 around addiction and then there are the other kids yes and it is so important to learn how to create harmony in the family given given you have a child that has addiction uh, that that isn't an addict and the reason i bring that up is so often 90% of our energy goes to that. That is one of my big regrets is that Stephen demanded so much of my attention 
And Peter, bless his heart, just kind of put his head down and and step at a time, got himself through teenagehood, got himself into a great job, got himself educated, but without very much support from me because all of my emotional attention and the emotions that were being drained, sucked out of me, yeah. were going toward the issue with Stephen. Yeah. A great relationship with Peter now, but it took several years to heal the wounds that were created when, in his mind, I abandoned him. Uh, I, it break, you know, it still breaks my heart that yeah. that's what he went through as a teenager was feeling like he wasn't important to his mom anymore because my new marriage, my new family, and Stephen's addiction were taking up all of my attention. But see, this is really the beauty in this, in a sense, because, you know, with your knowledge and wisdom, and with how much you've learned around this, you know, perhaps you'll be able to bring relief to a family, to a mom, a dad, a child. See, this is what we're talking about. And, you know, I mentioned at the top of the show, the information is now coming in about the impact of COVID-19. Everything, especially with women, women have been impacted by COVID-19 emotionally and all of the things that you've previously talked about, about relationships, women yeah. are in the forefront. They are being impacted by it personally, but also professionally and divorce rates are through the ceiling. And, you know, when you're in and you're looking at this, you ask yourself, where can I get help? How can I get help? But the one thing I want to say to everybody is you've got to get some help. Yes. It's you. I mean, Nancy. We don't have I, to do it alone. We don't have to do it alone. Oh, it's so daunting anyway. And to think we are weak if we ask for help is going to be our downfall. And it yeah. really is our strength, isn't it? Every couple that comes to me for coaching, I start out immediately praising them for the courage to ask for help. Because couples who don't ask for help, they're the ones who end up on the divorce court floor. Uh, it takes courage to say, we don't know what we're doing. We're doing something wrong, but we don't know what it is. So we need help. I'm wondering, Pat, if you'd mind if I spend a couple minutes in, yes. in tribute to Steve. Please do. Uh, the last couple of years he lived with us because he was dying. He could not work. And that was maybe the most, it was like the final pieces of codependency had to be broken in me, uh, setting appropriate boundaries. But about five months before he died, he faced the fact that he was dying and that no one could save him that there was nothing to stop his death. His heart was so far gone. And he decided on his own that in order to die with self-respect, he had to die clean and sober. So he cut out everything. He cut out the speed, he cut out marijuana, he cut out smoking and drinking and just went cold turkey. And I don't know why the detox didn't kill him. He had boils all over his back from his body trying to detox. But he, I, I, it still astounds me that he was able to cold turkey, stop everything, because his determination to die with self-respect 
was so deep and so clear. Now, I commend him. I'm, I'm in awe of the strength that that took. Uh, he died about four and a half months, I think, after he made that decision to die clean and sober. He began going to NA meetings. He was seeing a therapist by that time. But I don't know if this is true or not, and I certainly don't want to take credit for his decision to die with self-respect. But I, I also wonder what role did my own healing and the process that I went through, what role did that have in his ability to clearly say, I'm going to die with self-respect? That was, you know, it was in a, the last four months of his life, I got the sweet Stephen back, the kid that I knew as a young boy. Uh, when someone is an addict, their whole personality changes. You're not dealing with the real person at all. You're dealing with an addiction. And those last few months, I got the real Stephen back. That was such a precious gift to me. But you know, Nancy, I will say this to you, having been on multiple sides of this coin, your acts of love had an enormous impact. You may never know it, but I will tell you it does from being on both sides of that coin. There's nothing more powerful in modeling what love is. And despite whatever one does, you know, in the journey with a child or a family member, that act of love opens up so many opportunities for a person and an addict to love themselves thank you for those kind words it brings tears to my eyes yes it does one it night does. just a few days before he died i said mm -hmm. night to him and hugged him and he said mom can you hug me again that's it and i said i can hug you as many times as you want and yep. i asked him are you afraid of dying and he said, no, I'm afraid I can't stay clean until I die. Yep. I thought that is the enormous power of addiction, you know, to be dying and be afraid that you can't stay clean until you die. I mean, it was, well, it was a very, mm. and then he was hospitalized a few days before he died. And mm -hmm. uh, I was sitting in the hospital room with him. I thought he was napping, but I was holding his hand. And he began talking, and for two hours, he recalled all of his favorite memories from his childhood and all the things he appreciated about me. And in that dialogue uh, with tears running down my face, he said, Mom, you're the best friend I've ever had. And thank you for the boundaries you set for me. Thank you for the contract you made me sign. It, yeah. it helped me stay clean. It helped me reach my goal of dying with self-respect. And Nancy, that's why your work is so powerful and so needed in the world. Thank you so much today for your journey, for sharing this. Thank you so much. I so appreciate the opportunity to share this with others in hopes that they can shorten their journey. Of mine, mine was 15 years long. You know? Right. But you're going to help people with, people with that. For the for those of you out there, if you want to 
work with Nancy if you want to find out more, if you want to get her books, certainly go to nancylandrum.com.